In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. You have indeed found no proscenium. I am your host, Noah Nelson. Uh, welcome to the uh, last show of 2021 on this, the last day of 2021. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to kick it on over to uh, the crew and uh, we have just this kind of freewheeling conversation uh, about uh, about the year that was. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping uh, before we uh, go forward. There will be no episode next week. Uh, originally, this was because we were going to be deep in production on uh, the Next Stage Summit and uh, Mini Festival. But of course, thanks to the uh, uh, just... Uh, in incredible uh, COVID surge that's going on right now with Omicron. Um, we had something like, uh, I don't know, uh, five figures. The cases are in the five figures. Uh, the good news is hospitalizations and deaths are, uh, are, are, are not going up. But of course, with this many people testing positive, with this many people sick, uh, it's, it, you know, lots of folks are, are quarantined right now, as they should be. Um, you see this happening on Broadway. You see this happening everywhere. I don't need to tell you unless you really have been like avoiding the news. Um, so we're not doing it. Um, I might talk a little bit at the very, very end about that. In fact, I think I will. There's my promise to you. If you want to hear uh, me wax poetic about that, uh, fast forward, uh, no fast forward, listen to the whole thing and then you'll find me at the end. Uh, don't, don't skip over this one. This was a good one. And you can kind of tell, you can kind of tell. Uh, I was dreading this possibility. You hear it a couple of times uh, in the in the discussion. Uh, we recorded this, um, I believe we recorded this on the uh, 22nd, I want to say. We might have recorded it on the 21st. I might say later on. Uh, obviously, I haven't re-listened to the piece. Um, this has been an incredibly strange year, and we're going to get into that. Uh, I'll do, uh, let me, you know what, before, before we head off, let me just do a quick few shout-outs. Um, first off, as always, thank you to all our Patreon backers, but definitely thank you um, to our sustaining backers who you know, keep a roof over my head. That would be Ari Hurstan, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, David Bassick, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mustry, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Uh, thank you all so much for keeping us going. Um, we are, uh, like I said, taking a hiatus next week. Um, that, uh, that does not mean we're not publishing. We will have a few things to go into publishing queue next week, but it's going to be a lighter week still. Um, mostly cause there's a lot of planning to be done. Uh, for those of you who had uh, badges for the next stage, uh, we are in the process of, uh, getting all the money that was taken out of the Eventbrite account back into the Eventbrite account. The wire transfers are under process. Hopefully, uh, those will, uh, the wire transfers will be resolved. I'm hoping by like Wednesday of next week. That's my hope. And then as soon as they're done, I'm going to hit bulk refund and boom. Uh, my goal is to get everyone their money back before the event was supposed to happen. And this is full refunds. No, no partial refunds this time. We were very lucky and that, uh, we, we are not on the hook for anything. Um, uh, the uh, Pasadena Sheridan was uh, amazing and, uh, gave us, uh, let us off the, our obligations given what's going on. Um, so yeah, um, there's uh, a lot of work to be done. Um, there's uh, this event 
as it, as it was designed, uh, will not take place at any point. Uh, we we've tried twice now, not going to go third time's the charm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we will not have a, a festival. It doesn't mean that we won't have a summit. It doesn't mean that we won't be doing actually probably a lot of events, uh, in 2022. Uh, we just want to redesign things so that this stops happening to us because it hurts a lot. Anyway, that's the logistical side. I'll probably talk a little bit more on the back end for those who really want it. Okay. And on that note, um, I hope you have uh, a fantastic weekend. And uh, if you're canceled your New Year's plans or whatnot, then uh, you get to hang out with us. And I hope we're not too depressing. <laughs> I don't think we are. I think this is a pretty good conversation. All right. Bye. Here we are at the end of another very strange year. It is the end of 2021 episode of No Persinium. Uh, you'll note uh, there was maybe no music at the start. We just like cut in, dropped in on it. Uh, and joining me tonight um, from uh, deep out in the valley in Los Angeles, uh, our LA uh, editor. Hi, this is Kevin Gossett. And from somewhere, and I don't, I don't actually know where, and that's fine. I'm not going to reveal any more than that. Uh, also in LA, our arts editor. Hi, Laura Hess. And out there on the East Coast, our East Coast editor at large. Blake Wilde, yes, your East Coast exile. <laughs> and uh, tonight we're we're just going to look back on the the year that was. So we're trying to find a way to like. Uh, hang a structure on this one and uh we're recording this on uh tuesday december 21st this should release on thursday the 30th so nine days that could (laughs) be very different in nine days uh because as everyone knows we're in the middle of the uh omicron surge which has uh, freaked new york city right out um, we've had uh, one death in Texas so far confirmed to be linked to Omicron. And of course, um, Delta is still running around, right? Uh, people are acting like Omicron's pushing Delta out of the mix. Nah, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of Omicron. Delta's still doing its thing. So a very, very strange Christmas that feels, um, uh, giving some people flashbacks to, uh, March, 2020, which, uh, for the record, I will say definitively say is my least favorite month of all time. Uh, especially and, now that you're in month, what is it now? Uh, uh 22 of it. Yeah. Pretty much maybe 21, 22, what, whatever it is. Uh, and yeah, um, who, who knows what will have happened between when we record this and when we drop this. So uh, I may need to like give a, give a thing at the beginning, but for a minute, I thought we were going to do seasonal. Uh, and Kevin rightly pointed out that he could not remember what he did like back in the spring. Um, and then he asked, uh, what if we could hang it on some bigger themes? And that prompted me to think of this. So we kind of got back from pure online stuff into some in-person things in June and July. That's when it kind of came alive here in LA. June is when uh, Meow Wolf opened, Omega Mart opened in Las Vegas uh, and has been doing gangbusters. Apparently, you know, I heard some statistic that more people have been through Omega Mart 
uh, in six months than like in a year worth of House of Eternal Return. Don't quote me on that, but that's something I heard. Some I think someone said it here on the podcast like a week ago. Uh, <laughs> Callback, which who was that? Was that Todd? Was that Scott? I think it was one of those guys. Um, and um, so that's that sort of changed. I kind of feel like it changed everything. What what for all of you? What was what was the moment where this year started to feel? different even if now it's feeling different a different way just all the differences kevin how about you when when did when did when did 21 stop feeling like 20 so i think as you pointed out stuff kind of started up back here in in july i think that was around when i hit brass roots district which was like it was a fun show was outside that was when it started like maybe we're headed towards something and then i think when we actually had a true spooky season in LA was when it was like, okay, it feels like we're, we're normal. Everything felt safe a couple months ago. Like we had creep, we had delusion, horror nights was back. Everything was kind of like in full swing and it felt good to, to be back in that, that world and that zone, which is like my favorite part of like LA's immersive scene is that the kind of spooky season run. Cause that's what there's a lot of it here. <laughs> we do air on the side of horror themed stuff or creepy themed stuff. Um, but that was when I felt it was like, okay, this is immersive feels back in a way that like I really enjoy it. Yeah. And like there's something like like the I was just I was struck by thinking about, you know, things feeling safe. And, you know, we know a lot of the performers in uh, you know, delusion and creep and all the stuff that happens. And like I mean, obviously people aren't going to necessarily go and broadcast if they got sick at a show, right? You know, like the performers, which, you know, isn't necessarily the best thing. But I don't recall there being like any kind of cast spread in October. Like I don't, no show wound up doing a sick out. I, I just, I don't remember that happening. Um, I don't remember. No, I didn't, I didn't hear anything about it. No. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, maybe people will, like try and hide it from us, but like, you know, it's kind of, some things are kind of hard to hide. Um, so yeah, and I, I think, so I think it not only felt safe, I think it, it possibly was safe the way things were operating. Laura, how yeah. about for you? Oh, go. go oh, can, I was going to say, yeah, no, I don't, oh, with no, the masks ahead. and the vaccines were like, it was like really in that kind of full swing and kind of late September, early October. So I think it did kind of. It was safe. Like, I don't, that's what it was. Everyone was masked in these shows. Everyone was wearing, had vaccines. Like, they were checking the, the cards and it it felt safe. And it, it seems like it was because, as you mentioned, there wasn't kind of anything that we, we heard about, at least, um, compared to, I think, now where we're kind of are hearing more. Yeah. Laura, how about for you? I think it was very similar. I actually did go to Vegas in July. I will say that that was, and I did, a bunch of stuff at area 15 and I had done, I think a couple weeks before that in Los Angeles, I started doing some things. Um, I had a leftover ticket from the nest pre pandemic. I was able to use that. That might've been later in July. I went to chromosonics satellite one. I think that was a little bit earlier in June. And so I was starting to be able to do these things and, um, 
I think that in some of those situations, like the Nest and, and Satellite One, because it was it was so intimate, there were so few people, uh, and the COVID protocol was so closely followed, it felt unnerving in some ways, but it also felt so liberating. And I was so grateful to be able to have these experiences. And I mean, I've talked about both of those, and um, they're such beautifully designed incredible experiences. So it felt just so massively restorative and energizing and inspirational. Being in Vegas was definitely, um, I I mean, I knew it was a risk and um, I tried to be as safe as possible, but I was very cognizant of how, and I got early tickets for Omega Mart and it, it was, I mean, within a couple of hours, it was absolutely packed and it was unnerving. And it, so there was this interesting dichotomy of feeling like we've just been released from a cage and, and, you know, sort of feeling like, um, (laughs) I so often use food metaphors. Um, and I'll just, you know, I'm just going to stick with that. Um, and it really felt like being able to sit down to this wonderfully rich, incredibly flavorful meal after so long of eating the same bland food, something like that. And yet it, it, it was all laced with this fear and and even just the being out of practice being around that many people so i do think that it was an interesting dichotomy of feeling incredibly grateful and feeling nourished in ways that i hadn't been for so long and yet i was very aware of the danger there was a kind of underlying anxiety throughout all of it and i think that it was similar to what kevin is saying i think it was a couple months later that um even though that was really when delta was starting to hit at least in the U.S. And then strangely, in like September, October, it started to feel like, well, maybe maybe we really are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And it felt like some of that laced anxiety was dissipating. Yeah. And so there have been such interesting peaks and valleys within this whole process. Um, and now I feel like we're back to, yeah, a very, a, a very high a valley. <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, a deep, a deep valley. You know, yeah. a, 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 a peak of surge, but a valley of depression. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Unfortunately, <laughs> right. You know, and and just you know, obviously, thinking very hard about you know, it. Do the tools that we've been using successfully so far? Are are they gonna are they gonna hold up? And and not just in the short term, not just because like I'm facing, you know, th- this drops a week before when we have the summit planned to go. And as of this recording, we're still planning on doing the summit. There could be a shift between now and then, like a total, a total shift. And every day we like talk about well what are we going to do you know like do we do we need do we need to adjust things do we need to shut down um which is a full-on repeat of what i did almost to the day uh you know like it's almost in this exact same period of time like i'm having such strong march 2020 flashbacks right now and and yet you know projecting forward how many more times 
are we going to to have these sorts of cycles and do the tools we have all the tools vaccines booster vaccines masks social distancing uv lights hepa filters all that stuff how how many how well will it hold up um in a world where you know the order does not come down from on high that we're going to full on lockdown, break all the you know break all the transmission chains and just ride it out and and, and let it die out, which a possibility that seems to have gone completely out the window in March of 2020, in February of 2020, like the die was cast, and I just I, I you know what does that mean for all of this work because we had that lovely fall here and it it felt like even with the masks like oh we can we can get those feelings back we can do this kind of work we can go to stuff you know and and yeah i don't know i don't know if we want to shift the conversation at this point but i'm just going to throw out there because i think it 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 could be an interesting segue is that as we're talking about kind of these peaks and valleys and Blake, I don't mean to trump your opportunity to talk about, you know, your timeline, but. Oh, no, do not worry about this. This is a tough act to follow. It gives me more time to think of anything worthwhile to say. (laughs) Well, I do think that um, I think one interesting or at least noteworthy point to make that we can potentially open up to a larger conversation is that because we've had these interesting peaks and valleys and that that maybe didn't go the way that we'd hoped that they would. I also think that that has opened up more dialogue around, I feel like there's been a perspective, and maybe it's an erroneous perspective, but I feel like there's been a perspective that digital theater was a placeholder. And I feel like now we are on that kind of event horizon of saying, you know what, digital theater is not a placeholder. And even for people who were very enthusiastic about remote experiences, Kevin, I know that wasn't quite your jam. I have loved so many of the remote experiences that I've done. I'm so grateful to these amazing creators. And I think that it, I think that now as we're navigating this landscape, we're seeing that I think there's more people settling into this idea that these things, the spectrum of what theater is. So obviously I'm specifically talking about theater, but I think, you know, whether it's uh, virtual escape rooms, the, the, the sort of broader topic of how do all of these things live under the experiential umbrella and not looking at any single one of these parts of the industry as a kind of placeholder and saying that these all have value, they all inform each other, there's incredible innovations across the board, and that we really do shift our perspective around how are we going to approach all of this work and not just, okay, we're waiting to get back to in-person. And I think we, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week. And I know I'm usually down on the, um, the kind of remote stuff we talked about with the, the year end best of list rather that I think there are, there are cool things. Like we've had, I talked about assassin artists. Um, we had lavish shifting rules. We've had, um, if I'm going to botch the presentation, unless Blake bails me out, the one based in Japan, Obaken, um, escaping from the killer, yes. or whatever that fabulous subtitle is. 
Not to cut you off, though, Kevin, but I think, you know, in your defense, as someone who has been a little bit more down on at-home immersive, the shows that you're... <coughs> excuse me. Sorry, cut that a little bit down the wrong pipe. Um, in defense of you, Kevin, the shows you're describing are all kind of the standout innovators here. There has been a lot of very lazy online work from companies not used to doing remote work that have just sort of cut and pasted in-person techniques without considering how the change in medium is going to affect how they play. Assassin Artist, Lab of Shifting Rules, and Obaken all played with distance as a enabling function that gave them their mm. central strengths. And so I, I think we're seeing really a split in at-home remote immersive <laughs> between shows that are stronger and start from a central premise of, okay, I'm performing something remotely, what can I do? And things that they themselves believe themselves to be a placeholder. This is not necessarily just an audience and critical issue. I think it's also a creator issue. I love that you said, you know, uh, use the word distance, because I think it's not just about a matter of them planning around the fact that it's a remote performance, but the ones that kind of use do it well build distance into the interaction between not only performer and the audience, but the audience and the audience. Like one of the things that makes If Musibia uh, hiding in the dark, waiting for the killer, uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever it goes, I'm going to keep on trying until we get one of his kids right by accident, uh, is, that, is that the distance is acknowledged, right? Like we are in all these different spots in the world having a wrist-mounted Skype discussion with a young woman in Japan who, because of, you know, is giving us a virtual tour of a place because of the pandemic. And in every step of that, you know, the distance between us is is not only acknowledged, it, it celebrates the wrong word, but it's, it, it's, it's it, critical it's to integral. the experience. Yeah, it's integral yeah. to the experience. You know, even on just sort of a much simpler mechanical level, but equally beautifully executed is... I guess also in Japan, I guess they, they have kind of a knack for remote work at this point. Uh, we're just, we're just, is, we're all closet weebs. It's okay. So. Uh, some of us are more closet than others. Um, <laughs> but no, the, um, the lab of shifting rules just use distance to perform an incredibly elegant magic trick by having one off-screen facilitator constantly puppeting and swapping things out and moving things around when the camera's back is turned, and doing this all elegantly and silently. It took the medium and used it to enhance its presentation and what it was capable of. And it, it displays a level of thought that I would really like to see, you know, should at-home immersive continue at the rate that it has been in the pandemic, which my money in, it should, you know, we're having a surge. I don't want this to mean that we have no theater. In that case, I'd really like to see that same level of thought going in. Well, and I well, think, I think that, that, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. 
I think this is one of the things we've, we've talked about in our review crew a lot too, is that like, I think there's a space for this, this work to continue to exist because I don't like, I never would have done these shows with you, Blake, because we're not in the same spot, but I've done a bunch of escape rooms with you. I've done a bunch with Patrick. I've done a bunch with Laura and a bunch with all like the rest of the no pro crew. And it's, so hopefully they do kind of continue to take the, the lessons learned from these stronger shows and pull them into like more remote work that is accessible to people. And you can, it doesn't matter where you are and you can be safe or you, even if it's just like, you don't want to drive somewhere to go to an escape room tonight, you can do something cool. So hopefully more people do take these lessons and really try to like understand what has made them, them work over the last year, year and a half and, and continue to drive it forward in this kind of virtual space. Right. And theory. So I, think, go for I was it. just going to jump in really quick to say, like, I think that, um, you know, Blake pointing out distance specifically is uh, is one key element. And I think there's also other very thoughtful, well-crafted approaches, again, the intentionality behind it. So the adjacent possible is another, but that used anonymity. So it mm. wasn't about, and now there were actually people from all over the country, the US, there were people from all over the world um, in the performance that I joined and in other performances. Um, they actually reached I don't remember the final tally. They were trying to reach someone in Antarctica. Um, so there was a goal for this to be a, a truly global experience throughout all of the performances. But the point being that in that case, there was something that was so absolutely integral that highlighted, I mean, not just highlighted, that really infused the performance with the magic that I don't think that it could have had otherwise, at least not in that iteration. So I think that there are these different elements of, again, really looking at what is remote, what is virtual offer you. And there have been other shows that we've talked about, certainly that I've talked about, like Out There or TM, you know, or The Sleepover. We've talked about these different shows that really understand the technology, the platforms that they're using and craft with that in mind. And so it can be about distance, but it can also be about other elements like anonymity. You know, it's it's funny you bring up anonymity because I think if we're having this discussion, we can't, you know, have it completely without talking about Odyssey Works' uh, Book of Separation, which for all of its flaws, and I, I know it had some flaws, I know Noah eloquently wrote about the effects a glitch can have on how a piece lands in this remote era, but the way that even, you know, intimacy and knowledge of one another can be leveraged over a remote connective platform, that it, distance is certainly one element, I agree with you, but the entire, that isn't to say that is the one color you're allowed to paint with or seasoning you're allowed for your food. Right. The, we, we still have the full toolkit. We just have to be judicious in how we use them. To use another flavor metaphor, Laura, you know, <laughs> every, whenever you have to cook on an airplane, I learned this from Food Network, overseason <laughs> the food, your taste is dulled at altitude. And so overseasoned food is going to taste like normal food on a plane. We're somewhere different right now. That somewhere is online. We still have all the same seasonings. The ratios are just going to need to change. Exactly. Yeah. There's something also in what you guys are talking about that's making me think about 
you know, the buzzword of the season, well, one of the buzzwords of the season, metaverse. And, you know, one of the things that makes the way it's being used right now ring so hollow is that aside from, you know, uh, an, an inability to acknowledge the roots of the term, you know, from cyberpunk dystopias, uh, based on the hollowness of 1980s uh, American shopping mall culture, which is where it arises from in Snow Crash. Um, but this this sense that just the new shiny is going to be the thing that leads you into the promised land in order to like make people like pump a bunch of money into investments, right? You know, because we still live in a, in a culture dominated by finance and, and investor culture uh, at the highest levels but this idea that the work that we've been watching for the past couple of years uh the 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 good stuff that plays around with uh connecting people at a distance at uh leveraging anonymous uh identity uh letting people take on a role that they wouldn't necessarily take on otherwise, which is, you know, the equivalent of donning an avatar in a VR space. That all of these things, these techniques, beyond just the simple technical parts of them, whether or not you're able to connect people via a Zoom call, get people into a VR chat world and and avatar them up, uh, make sure the connection doesn't drop. Beyond those fundamentals, there's a way of gathering people at a distance. Uh, There's an art to it. Uh, And that the people who are making the interesting immersive work online uh, are in dialogue with the people who make the interesting immersive work offline because those physical world experiences require the same kind of thoughtfulness around giving the audience a role, letting them step out of themselves, creating a space where they, you know, can let go of their normal persona, finding may, ways to connect them. You know? May I piggyback off you a little bit there? Please, riff. This is actually really tying into a lot of kind of my frustrations in the discussion around the artistic and specifically theatrical possibilities of the metaverse and web 3.0 or whatever it is we're calling it now and that is this idea that the metaverse and web 3.0 enabled by blockchain is all about persistence and about permanence and everything at the end of the day being tied back to you your meat self and your central immutable identity and One of my, coming into immersive theater, originally from more of a background in LARP, I really feel like one of my central joys within the space is this mutability of the self. And I think a lot of the time and a lot of the sort of pre-launch buzzy discussion around the theatrical possibilities of the metaverse are either celebrating or failing to acknowledge properly that within a structured metaverse, 
as it seems to be commonly understood, there is a persistence of self. And that persistence of self, I think, is going to be one of these really big obstacles to creating true metaverse theater, as opposed to creating immersive in more discrete online formats. If I'm talking gibberish, someone step no, in. No, no, no. Like, I mean, I think, because I think what you're talking to is, you know, there is this inherent tension between, particularly when we hear people talk about, you know, they start going like, oh, it's Web Web 3.0 is going to take the best of Web 1.0. And it's like, well, part of the best of Web 1.0 is like, no one knew you were a dog, right? And like the great battle of Web 2.0 was I remember when Facebook was you know very much like all oh, you can have one account one identity this is your true self and uh, it's your true truest self and you can even see that you know in the culture of even like the culture of Tumblr right who are you really do you have can do you have the authority to speak on this are you pretending to be something you're not um, all of that stuff was something we we kind of warred over in 2.0 when 1.0 was like online i can be someone who i'm not allowed to be in real life and then web 2.0 culturally has been web 2.0 is realer than real it's it's this it's the digital spirit realm that like impacts the real world I mean, it's how we got trump you know like the power of twitter was how we got trump yeah it's, it's twitter all day we're just like vomiting your it out there yeah, the yeah. At all times. Yeah. Space is now a post-reality reality. Yeah, and it's it it is it is subservient to the the fictional reality that is that is social media. So then, then the the three which is so much of his, you know, Jack of Twitter actually had like an early morning rant and like some something something has shifted in in Silicon Valley because suddenly. All, all of all of the crypto guys are, are are warring with themselves. It was inevitable, but um, this idea of who's going to own, like it's it's now about who owns the internet. Which parts of the internet do you own? Right, you know, like I own this uh, NFT. I own this, uh, you know, avatar in this space, and I can resell it. And the idea that it almost seems like the identity's attached to I have legal standing to own something, therefore I have personhood because I am an owner. And all must be owners in order to have personhood in Web 3.0. And if you're not an owner, you're a borrower or you're a copier, you have a right-click mentality. And uh, you don't have the real thing. Uh, that That is what – only ownership is authentic. I don't want to yeah. get too much into it, but again, it's it's so funny to me that these these fucking tech bros just like hilariously misunderstood what Snow Crash was was doing, <laughs> saying, pointing out. Like it's so it's so off base. Like it's what's what that, it wasn't supposed to become. It, what's it that tweet? Uh, we're inventing the death vortex from that classic <laughs> novel. Don't, don't invent, invent the, death the death vortex. vortex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're pro- we're pleased to announce. Yeah, and and the fact that it was like William Gibson is the one who like popularized that tweet is like just extra. It's the cherry on top of the Sunday, right? You know, and and it's like you know I I see people cheering the financialization of everything, uh, and so I'm so thankful when Brian Eno comes out and like boos it, 
but this this idea it's kind of maybe to get back to your point Blake or, or what I was hearing your point was one of the things that's great about the act of play and play is at the heart of all of this immersive experiential work is the shedding of the self for some period of time uh, in order to understand that you are not just the limited role that society puts upon you. I guess I a hundred percent agreed. You, you got what I'm saying perfectly. And I guess I just want to go back to kind of a right before the pandemic story that I've never told on, on the air before. And I don't know if I've actually told any of you about sort of our very own Cheyenne treated me as a going away gift from New York uh, to a ticket the month before it closed to Then She Fell. And one of the things that struck me the most about that show was the vulnerability that I was allowed to embody within that space. Those of you who know me from the podcast know that I am opinionated and a little bit prickly on occasion, <laughs> but, you know, g- generally good-spirited, I hope. But You're the cinnamon was... to the rest of our sugar. <laughs> Thank you. That is more flattering than I deserve. Um <laughs> That's because that's because I'm sugar. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, then she fell was this fantastic space where I was allowed to be things like vulnerable and obedient. And, you know, th- there were moments in there, you know, when an actor walks in on you trying to use your big wheel of keys to unlock a tiny cabinet and you can't find the right one and they walk in with you and you feel like your hand is in the cookie jar and you get this moment of bizarre flustering and shame. These are all also positive selves, things that we would call pro-social emotions. You know, that when we live in a very cynical society, we often don't get to exhibit in our day-to-day lives oh man yeah right yeah so i I just want to expand on this a little bit more in terms of um i'm going to try to link up a couple of things that we've been talking about and so i think this idea of play i think it is i think we often approach it as an overly simplistic idea i think it is an incredibly not us this group yeah I think, our I think, culture I think, yeah yeah broadly so i think a recent example that people would argue the opposite <laughs> about us so but yes <laughs> right, right so i think a recent example that's interesting is um as we're talking about uh, these remote productions and technology and web 3.0 and this idea of ownership and i think uh, one thing that was surprising to me that I was delighted by because it's um, I've done sleep no more three times so far. And um, it's been a while since the, you know, the very first time I did it. So I think there's a little bit of, you know, taking for granted that infrastructure in that world. And when I went to arcane, I was, I was so relieved. I, there was a moment of panic because I am someone who loves to 
record and document. And so there was a moment of panic when they said, you know, um, I mean, when I was reading the pre-show email uh, about your phones will be locked up. And I thought, oh, you know, rats, like... I was, I was frustrated and, and, and felt, again, just kind of a, a moment of panic, like, don't, don't separate me from my phone. And then the relief of actually having it locked up in these little pouches. Um, so it was still on my person. It wasn't out somewhere else where I thought it could be lost, um, but I couldn't access it. And the overwhelming relief then of being allowed to fully play and fully be present and not worry about recording or other people recording or, you know, waiting to get a shot or did I miss a shot of something or, and I think stepping away from the, and because that is also a sense of ownership, this sort of, I post, therefore I am mentality. Mm, And, you know, and so I do think that really looking at, as we're talking about, not just these remote productions and how we're utilizing technology and, everything with NFTs and because NFTs are baffling to me because of the, the limited engagement that you have, at least my understanding, uh, you know, with the actual product. And so having that opportunity to have technology taken away from you. And then when, when our phones were unlocked at the end and I could take some photographs of the space and have those mementos and to own those moments in a sense or own that experience in a sense, but to have also been gifted the freedom truly to just play, I, I think is something that we don't talk about enough in terms of intentionality in experience design. Yeah. But I think Arcane does, I mean, the phone thing is part of it, but I, I wouldn't have expected the show based on the League of Legends cartoon to be the one that like forces you into a persona and kind of that that specific style of play the best this year. And, and it, but it did, it was, it was, I mean, part of it is just like a fun show. It, it's, it's sandboxy. And it's like, I think that's something I always kind of do crave in, in immersive, but it, it allows you that space to like try on all these different hats and kind of play in the space and, and who do you want to be and how do you want to play this game? And, and it, you can, you can shift between them. I know Laura, we talked about that in our kind of long discussion on arcane, but it, I think it is, true and i think that's probably why a lot of us are drawn to immersive stuff and immersive stuff that works specifically kind of like like Blake was saying about then she fell um but that's i think that's that's what we crave and i think in a in a year like this it's 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 been an especially like kind of high craving in terms of like what what can you do in these in these spaces in these worlds whether it's virtual or in in person um and it's just it's been a big thing and yeah. I wanted to highlight my own Then She Fell story from, I think, probably the same month you went, like, and how good that show is at, at kind of forcing you into it. I don't normally, like, connect with shows in, in that way, but um, I end up in the, the room with all the flowers on the walls after you paint them. And I kind of, like, I stood there and I was just, like, taking it in and, and almost zoned out, just kind of feeling, like, the presence of everybody else in the space. And then the the orderly finally came up to me. And she's like, "Sir, you need to like, we need to leave this room." And it was, it was like, "Holy shit!" Like I was so like into that moment. And and then she fell. Just does that so well. And I know we can talk about then she fell for hours and hours on the show. But um, I just you know, shut that out. Just to just to piggyback on on something you were saying, and I guess what the idea that we're circling around 
And and forgive me from cribbing from Sondheim, but if you're going to crib from someone, crib from the greats, you know, rest in peace. But, you know, I've been, I've been listening to the complete Sondheim, and the other day I finally listened to The Frogs, because I'd never listened to it before. And I think that there is this idea in that show that we're circling around over and over about how play is inherently an act of resistance against a stagnating reality that with Mm. that play is a way in which you imagine other possibilities and without that things don't change and in a year that has been very bad out of a series of years that have been very bad for most people i think we need play and i think that well, ownership and play are not necessarily completely incompatible. Ownership is not play, and the two should not be confused. Yes. Mm-hmm. Concur. Also, you you stated that out in such a way that like sort of steeled my resolve for... It reminded me of like why I so desperately want to have... Why I want to gather like the community of creators is for reinvigorating that exact idea, right? Like you, the, the phrasing you used also remind me of like uh, at the second IDS, you know, Jenny Weinblum gave a talk about uh, immersive S rehearsal for resistance. Um, that was like one of the things it could do, but this idea that play itself is sort of, it's, it's always, it's not a rehearsal for resistance. It's an act of resistance against the status quo, right? We are, we are given a role by society and, you know, the, the thing that is great about acting as an actor, when you are an actor, is you find yourself uh, stepping outside of the role that you are prescribed to do in your day-to-day life and you take on the traits of someone else. Uh, you do different actions. It may all be make-believe, but the magic of it all is that everyone around you behaves as if it's not. And, and when the acting really works, everyone is responding very emotionally, realistically to your made-up actions. And that's one of the things that's so incredible about any immersive experience it's also one of the things like, you know, thinking back to like pre-pandemic remote shows, thinking about the kind of work that Kate Lane or uh, Faye, uh, Elizabeth Faye Stranahan uh, do, where you, you are having those moments where someone is responding very authentically to you uh, and it stops feeling like you're watching a performance. It never feels, it never feels like you're watching a performance, but it's like you're having, a, you know, a Skype call. Uh, I won't. I won't use the Z word. Uh, you're having a <laughs> Skype call with like the weirdest friend you know, and you just get kind of lost in that little alternate reality you have with them. I don't know if uh, Jenny Weinblum mentioned this, but I think an important qualifier, at least from my perspective, is that play is not just an act of resistance; it's an act of empathetic resistance. And I feel like we talk. Um, or I, I guess I feel like there's a little bit more of an emphasis around empathy and uh, tools that are empathy drivers in regards to VR. 
but I feel like there are, again, when I think back on how many great experiences I had a chance to explore this year, whether they were remote, whether they were in person, um, they were deeply empathetic. And that I do think that play, I think that's, a, that's another very important component of what play is, what play actively does, how play is shared. So I think right. kind of on, on that note, I'm going to use it to spin off in kind of a slightly different direction. Was there, I know what I kind of was chasing this year was like work that I don't want to kind of back to your earlier point, Laura, that like not to simplify it, but the shows I was chasing this year were like the ones that let you play and were just kind of fun to go through, whether it was Assassin Artist, whether it was Creep, whether it was Arcane, whether it was just, I did, um, Welcome to Metal Art Falls, the Very Merry Christmas contest. I just finished that up. There were these kind of fun, for the most part, light shows. And that's kind of what I was I was seeking this year, it, it seems like, based on the stuff that I enjoyed or kind of like wanted to attend. Was there anything that, that you guys were were like chasing this year in terms of the immersive work that you were you were going to? I don't know if there was anything specific that I was chasing. I think, um, I think as uh, I think most of us share this, that we try to go in as cold as possible. We try to allow for as much discovery as possible. So I think there were a number of times that uh, either shows were recommended to me or um, it was something that I stumbled across and I would try to go into it knowing the least amount possible to allow for maximum discovery. And I think, Again, overwhelmingly, uh, I, I think what I, I feel like I kept running up against was this incredible mix of real compassion um, and a real permission to just explore and feel. And sometimes that was, uh, you know, a more like emotional moving experience. Sometimes that was a very joyful experience. Sometimes it was more restorative, but I think that there was a, um, I think the universal theme from the experiences that I had a chance to participate in, I, I do think there was a real sensibility around compassion and permission and solidarity. I, I would follow up by saying I feel like I was seeking something kind of similar, that my main interest going into 2021 was finding shows that provoked a depth of emotion. You know, looking back at kind of some of my top shows of 2020, loved shows like uh, Thicket. But that was a show the reason that show stood out to me kind of in the pandemic era was that it, it provoked this real sense of joy and discovery and involvement. I know you weren't overly as big a fan of it as me, but I was going in this year, not just looking for joy, I guess, but looking for anything that could get me to, feel intensely within the reality that it created, no matter what that emotion was. And that's why something like 
if Musibia, hiding in the dark, escaping from the killer, yes, I got it right that time. You looked it up. I did not look it up. (laughs) I did not look it up. That came to me as I was saying it. Um, And the minute it came out of my mouth, I knew it. But, But that's why that stood out to me, because that was, you know, one of the first pandemic pieces that really, this year, that really got me jumpy and jittery and made me believe in the reality of the horror scenario. It's why I, you know, despite some mixed opinions, really left with fond memories and high reviews for uh, Blackheart Ghosts. That was a show that kind of, almost in a good way, let me wallow in self-pity, that it was a show that just was that emo fantasy of the dark pool of sadness that we can all just mire ourselves in and admire the beauty inherent in our universal tragedy. That was a show that caused a depth of emotion and an emotion that I don't really encounter in my day-to-day life. And so I feel like the successful shows this year were those that really picked a mood picked a tone and made me believe it. I think that's absolutely right because Kevin and I went together to creep. I mean, it was his second time going my first. And even though horror in general is not my favorite thing. And as I'm, I guess I want to clarify my statements because as I think there's a general perception of what like compassion is or, you know, solidarity. And like, that doesn't necessarily sound cohesive with horror. And yet, like, I mean, Kevin will tell you, I was incredibly vocal throughout the the entire creep experience because I was delighted. So even as I was screaming because I was startled, there, there was a jump scare. I was so invested. I was so present because that world had been so thoughtfully crafted. And because I felt like through the performances, I was given this permission to just play and to uh, suspend my disbelief, to release into this particular world and these characters. And so there were times that I would be startled. I would scream. I would then start laughing. I would make comments to um, different characters. and, And it was, so I think like, I guess I just wanted to clarify that I think there are things that when I refer to like compassion and solidarity and empathy, and it doesn't necessarily mean like a somber or deeply emotional and, you know, or hallmark experience. It can be horror, but it has to do with, again, how thoughtfully crafted and designed the experience is and how the audience is given permission because of, you know, or, or, or through that beautifully crafted design, you feel safe and you feel like you're given permission to just relax and release into it and play. Yeah. And I think we're, we're coming back to the idea that like how well it integrates you into the world and it doesn't have to be like as a character creep definitely doesn't really do that. It just kind of puts you in this world and lets you kind of <laughs> the world less let loose on you rather than like let loose on that world. Right. And it's, but it, it works and it, it just generates kind of, yeah, those like fun feelings because it's like it's a haunted house but you kind of get to know the characters a little bit or like you have some idea of their like their backstory through those later parts and that's what that's what makes it work and i think 
that also kind of echoed through delusion too. Like the best parts of that are the one where like it feels you like you're part of these world with these characters and can empathize with them and and feel like you're in that space and like understand what's going on on with them. So I think that's it's just kind of like like you said, it doesn't have to be limited to to any specific genre. Any it can work whether it's it's horror, kind of lighthearted or absurdist or eccentric or kind of whatever it's it's trying to do yeah i for me the big thing i didn't i didn't set out you know to chase a particular thing but what i found myself responding to the most were were the the experiences that really allowed me to just escape and i think like as someone who's like you know been honed in the culture uh I can often think of escapism as, as a bad word. I mean, I I consume a lot of escapist stuff. I I I engage with a lot of escapist material and in immersive, you know, being like you know like the critic. I'm I'm not necessarily the you know supposed to be looking for that. And yet, whether it's delusion or creep or the sleepover, which I was I guess I was last year, or you know. Parts of Darkfield, or um, I'm trying to think of like more online stuff, and like nothing's coming to mind. Well, you know, like Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, right? You know, like Star Wars. Hi, Noah. Um, the there you go, drink. Um, <laughs> almost an hour. Almost an hour. Almost time. an hour. Almost an hour. Uh, escapism, I think, is underrated, and which is funky because so much of our culture is just rooted into it. Um, but I feel like when we dismiss escapism uh, as as low art, as low entertainment, I think we miss opportunities um, to inject and endow that work with something more. You know, arcane is uh, pretty heavy duty escapism, but woven into that cartoon are some like kind of big themes about inequality. Um, there's, there's some thought going on in that writer's room that, that isn't what you would necessarily expect out of a cartoon based on a video game. And because of how well secret cinema hewed to the realities of that world, those ideas resonated even if they weren't present in the text of the show uh the the live show because they were drawing on the characters situations and iconography of arcane um they they were inevitably uh drawing upon those themes and also makes me think about the other the thing that i've come to realize the most in the past year uh with any and all media is that it really is character uber, uber alles for me. Like just character, 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 character. I either love the characters or I just do not care about the worlds. Like I don't care about your lore. I don't care about your production design. I don't care about like how many teraflops of GPU power you're pushing through. If the characters aren't interesting, I'm going to wander off and like read a book with some interesting characters. So with that in mind, take a moment to think about this. Uh, of all the things you've done, and maybe let's 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 try and set aside arcane and creep and delusion 
uh, also because they're so LA centric. Um, so think about, you know, other things you've done this year. It could be LA things, but other things you've done this year, um, where you've encountered a character. It doesn't have to be a performance. It could be, you know, character you found on the page or, uh, a character who like is implied through, you know, the, the text of the work. Are there, are, what, what character does anyone have a character that like stands out to them? I know it just like dropped a stumper on you guys. Out of, well, out of I'm going to, I'll just, maybe this will buy Blake and Kevin a little bit of time and they can <laughs> say something brilliant, but I'm going to add an addendum to this. What were you chasing? I, I also think that there were times where I was chasing uh, I was like, please give me what I don't even know that I need right now. And I do think that there were there were experiences, there were shows, there were performances where, and I th- and the one that's most top of mind again is the adjacent possible. I didn't know that I needed that particular type of experience to feel those feelings through that particular uh, design. And so that was definitely something that, I felt like because of 2020, I really trusted so many. I mean, Blake was absolutely right to cite at the top of the show that there has been a lot of uh, poor design. And I think it's it's mostly well-intentioned. People are innovating. They're innovating in real time. But I think there were so many overwhelmingly great shows and great experiences that I did really feel like I could trust people. And so I was also sometimes chasing you know, please give me what I don't even know that I need. An in-person example would have been Hive Rise, which is LA specific and was only two nights. Um, So uh, that was something that I don't think previously I had ever, you know, felt that way about chasing that specific, um, you know, that, that, that kind of desire. Uh, in terms of characters, I'm going to turn it over to Kevin I'll, I'll and Blake. So, you know, I, I was kind of, you made a, a few minutes to mull it over. And I think, so one of them, I, just because it's fresh in my mind, I just, I, I mentioned earlier, I did Welcome to Millard Falls, their second show. And it it was, it picked up where their last Christmas show left off. They have both kind of, both kind of versions of Postal Plays, but there's these video and audio segments during each of them where they pick up with the characters and you kind of get to know them. And it's, it's nothing like brand new and it's, it's really playing on, on rom-com tropes, but it, it feels nice to like return to these characters. I did that the second one this weekend. It was like, it's just kind of like a warm, fuzzy feeling with this Christmas theme show and these nice characters and everything works out in the end. And they, and they got what wanted, but it's, I think even you can take kind of those, those basic character tropes and still use them properly. Cause I mean, that's what, that, when tropes are used properly, they, they work. To kind of drive those characters and, and that that feeling that the show is going for, and the other kind of offbeat one is, I think the the sort of player characters I'll call them in If Musevia, um, Lava Shifting Rules, and Assassin Artist, who you kind of get to know during the course of the show, and they're not really characters, but things happen to them, or you kind of have to prevent things from happening to them, and and it's again, a pretty simple thing, but it drives a lot of empathy in, in kind of how you react to those, those shows and what you have to do or what you're trying to do to like get 
the the protagonist out of the the killer's house or kind of how you have to interact with the the character in assassin artist or what happens near the end of lab of shifting rules kind of what you have to do to like kind of help them through these scenarios even as they've been helping you the the whole time um so i think that's kind of like an an odd one but it was one that that weirdly worked and i think i mean we've talked about those shows are, are very good but how, what they what they strive to do in their in their production too so it's very funny noah that that you mentioned that this character doesn't necessarily have to be a performance because one of the characters that really stuck out for me this year was pretty much the one and only character in unravel by spectropulse in philadelphia uh quick refresher on what the show was it was a haunted house horror show in which you an audience of one played a detective's assistant for one detective montgomery who had broken his arm to help him investigate a suspicious death maybe a suicide maybe related to a cult of course it's related to a cult that's why you're coming to the show but slowly over the course of the show, the entire narrative is really built around this character of Detective Montgomery. And I'll admit, in my review, although I loved the piece, I was fairly critical of the actor who played Detective Montgomery's performance. I called it a little bit flat. But the character of Detective Montgomery shined through. And this narrative turn of this very arch spectacular pulp fiction murder where a serial killer calling himself the angel of death has killed a girl and then shrinking that down to this small personal tragedy for one sad overwhelmed man that was really a beautiful narrative stroke and that character has stuck with me because, as you were saying, that character was so central to the story and effect the piece was trying to convey. I'll jump back in for a second to say that my favorite characters, as I'm sitting here listening to Kevin and Blake and thinking about, okay, what did I you know, see this year? I actually think that my favorite, some of my favorite characters were real people. Um, and I'm specifically thinking of A Thousand Ways, both part one over the phone and part two, an encounter which was in person. And to, um, and in a way, be- because of my limited knowledge about both of these people, these fellow participants, they almost feel like characters to me. I have such limited knowledge of who they are and yet I also feel like I really know them. They feel more like friends than anything. Um, and that is so incredibly powerful. These are real people out there in the world who just responded very honestly with vulnerability. And they, I have thought of both of them throughout the year and wondered how they are and what they're doing. And I, I just think that that is... I I think it is so incredibly powerful. So I would be 
a fool not to piggyback off of what you said, Laura, and say that, you know, in a year where online LARP was a thing, you actually portrayed one of my favorite characters of the year. I did? Uh, you were so spectacular the other week when you were playing my sister. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, in Savage Hall. You were fantastic. (laughs) The fact that I was able to develop this rapport and relationship with your character over Zoom in the course of an hour really took a piece that I was pretty meh on and turned it into a really fun evening. And remember, I was doing that with a fever of about 101 that night. So a thousand snaps to you for saving that for me. Oh, that's you're very kind. I, I think that is a great example, though, also of how our team, um, I think everyone did a fantastic job. And it was such a delightful evening because our group had committed so thoroughly and really tried to embody these characters as we're learning about them in real time. We're being given these pieces of information through these different kind of audio chapters. And that was another, um, that was another highlight because it did feel like whether as I'm citing these, these other participants or we're talking about a LARPing situation, that kind of commitment, um, I'm essentially stating the obvious here, but it does, it makes all the difference. And it, again, gives you that permission to just fully drop in and play and not censor yourself or not feel inhibited in any way. And there's something to be said with both your experiences with IRL people that you met in these, in these pieces and Blake's experience of you playing a character where what makes the characters work, what makes the connections to these people work are the structures that are given, right? Like you wouldn't necessarily be having these experiences of other people if the sandbox wasn't there, if the the experience wasn't constructed in a way that allowed for that. Yes, exactly. And, and it's weird because it's like, I, I wish <laughs> I wish I could give like a, you know, a three point piece of advice to creators to say like, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will successfully create this, but it, it, it isn't simple because, you know, we're talking about incredibly different experiences, but there's, there's a, a, I guess at the end of the day, there's a principle of giving space for something to emerge and for something to emerge specifically from the participants and not just be you know, forcing a performance uh, on the audience, but creating room and creating space for the audience to become the participants, to become the co-creators of the work. I mean, I think think the the broad recommendation would be have a sense of intentionality in terms of how these things are designed and, and what the, like, if everything's thought through it, it makes it much easier for the people to, to slide into that world and their place in it, whether it kind of is a little off kilter or it it's, it's something grounded in, in realism. Um, I know we kind of come back to that idea a lot too, is, is just the thought behind these shows is, is so important. And it's like the first step to anything that is actually going to 
going to work and be affecting and create that connection and generate that empathy and all these things I think we've been talking about for the last hour or so um, kind of comes back to that idea. Or not. Does someone want to run with it? All right, I'll segue us out. All right, we'll take we'll take a mental pause here uh, and segue us into looking ahead. Uh, none of this will get recorded. This will we'll go right from Kevin's bit to this next section. So just think for a second. I'm going to ask all of you um, if there's something uh, you're hopeful for uh, being in 2022. Okay, so take take a couple of minutes, take a minute or two to think about that. And I'll spring it on. Once someone's got something else, I'll I'll spring the actual transition for everybody. I got something. Okay. All right, we'll do the transition. Okay, we've been at this for a little over an hour and this is the end of the year show. Now, I don't want to do predictions because uh, always in motion is the future. And <laughs> anything we might uh, predict right now will probably be just like already like silly in about a week. But I wanted to ask you all if there's anything you're hopeful for and that you, you hope to see in the year ahead. Blake? Uh, we, uh, we ended with you and all the cycle earlier. Let's start with you now. Also, because we know that you, you've got something, <laughs> you volunteered while we were having a, a quiet, invisible break. So to, to start, I just want to give y'all an idea of my mental state right now. Uh, earlier this week, I was listening to a new year's playlist and the original Sherman Brothers recording of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow came on and made me cry. So, you know, that's where I'm at right now in terms of feelings around hope for the future. But I was thinking back to when one of my weird hopeful highlights of this year was weirdly enough spending way too much on tickets to go see The Burnt City with my sister. And, you know, with Omicron, with the inevitable next letter of the Greek alphabet, who knows what's going to happen in July when I'm supposed to go. But I'm hopeful and I'm sure that there will be what I was looking for in that piece and that there's going to be new worlds to explore and there's going to be new sights to see and emotions and stories to embrace. And no matter what form they take, it's both my privilege and my job, I suppose, to embrace those openly. So no matter what it is, I couldn't be more excited. Excellent. Kevin or Laura? I can jump in. Kevin, go for it. I think kind of to to piggyback off what, what Blake's saying, I, I just want to be excited by a show and, and not just like, oh, that show was an exciting thing to go to, but but excited and surprised by something. Like, I think we keep coming back to Arcane, but I don't, 
that show didn't have to be as good as it was uh, based off. I mean, it has the, the secret cinema kind of pedigree, but I wasn't expecting to have as much fun in that that world that I kind of knew nothing about immediately prior to the show to to the way it played and was kind of gamified and, and mixed and matched some pieces. So I think just to to find something new, whether it's it's kind of a blending of kind of the more commercial things with with immersive work or even something like with Creep where they've kind of found new ways to to push forward in terms of they have this this space and are they going to use it and they've they've used it a few other times and, and other things and how people are going to drive the, and even things like the um the immersive escape room remote things that I've really connected with I wouldn't have expected those those a year ago and I think to to have them now was cool so I hope that that continues forward into next year too is is these kind of surprising things that i i wouldn't have expected out of immersive or to, to connect with and to, to find more things like that what i have to say is really a continuation on both what kevin and blake said i'm i'm hopeful that we are not going to press pause on anything i'm hopeful that we are not going to box anything up and try to put it away or put it quote unquote back i think that uh i've said this before and i think it bears repeating I am not trying to minimize any of the devastation and heartbreak of the pandemic. And I also believe that there have been so many positives that have come out of it. I hope that we continue to innovate across the board, that there's less gatekeeping, that there is less siloing, that there is more diversity. We've seen how uh, there's been more accessibility and I'm hopeful that we're going to continue down that path and that there's going to be a lot less energy that is directed at, again, kind of debating what something is or isn't, or uh, thinking of something as like a placeholder or that it is like a lower rung on the ladder and that all of the work is going to be truly celebrated, that it's going to be truly supported and that it's truly available to people because we've already seen now during this incredibly difficult and truly horrific time that there is so much that can come out of it and I don't mean to oversimplify but I really do think we have seen such incredible work and I'm really hopeful that there isn't going to be a I think now there's there's hopefully going to be less of a again like getting quote-unquote back to things that it is truly about saying kind of the you know, improv, like, yes, and, and whether that's the digital work, whether that's the in-person work, that it really is all about yes, anding. And what about you, Noah? What, what, what are you looking forward to, or hoping for, at least, in the coming year? Well, on this very day, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned before we start recording, I'm in a very, you know, pessimistic space, and... I think, I think the the thing that there's so many things arrayed at at the uh, at the levels above our pay grade, if you will, right? The political climate, the general cultural climate, the uh, all all the excitement about Web three from the financial sector, and how that is shaping which projects get funded in the cultural space. And 
what I'm hoping for is that the things that people have maybe written off and the the work that allows people to be connected, that it's given a chance to make a real comeback. It's given a chance to establish itself, that we get to have Sleep No More opening back up in New York in February or thereabouts, that we see Burnt City and Arkham open in London, that um, Star Cruiser, uh, which uh, I've been not been paying attention to the the PR campaign at all, but apparently had a, has been having a very bumpy PR campaign. It, it's like, so cursed, Noah. Like it's no, so someone cursed. someone someone described to me what happened, and I was like, they did what now? They and then they and then they pulled it, and like, oh my goodness. Uh, but that that the proof winds up being in the eating, right? And that people that the actual work. Knowing who's working on it, I'm, I'm sure the actual work is going to be fantastic. They've they've drawn in the best people they could find on the planet, um, people whose work we've all enjoyed. <laughs> like I will, I will tell you guys some stuff out of school, um, and so like that that people do the thing and, and love the thing, uh, and uh, you know we will. We will see. Um, we'll see that hype cycles matter less than actual quality, and that we start to move out of a world where perception is reality into one where the reality is the reality, and the and uh, and it can be more clearly perceived. So that's my hope. That's my wish, if you will. 2022 as we enter into it and i think that extends outside of our realm into the world as a whole all right on that note um there'll probably be a formal closing so i'll save for that but uh any last things you guys want to chime in here uh before uh before we say goodbye to uh our second pandemic year no it's just that this was delightful thank you all so much for such a you know, another great conversation. I, I guess the one thing I have to say is that I came into this half prepared to, you know, pour myself a drink for the office holiday party. And I think we had one of the most interesting and intense conversations about the current state of immersive art and its future. And <laughs> it's why I'm always. What do you think an office party have- here is? No. <laughs> It's why I'm so thankful to have such an awesome, you know, group of writers here with me who are just as passionate about this insane, constantly evolving art form that has entranced all of us. Kevin, last words? Yeah, I'm just, I'm thankful for for this conversation. I think all the conversations we've had throughout the year, it's been great to, I think, connect with with the wider kind of no pro crew uh, with through the review crews and and just have discussions about immersive and and get all these different takes and and opinions and thoughts and it's it's been awesome. Once again, I want to thank Blake and Kevin and Laura for. Uh, 
joining me this week to uh, send off the year. At least it wasn't 2020. Uh, and now the uh, the promised uh, riffing on uh, having to close down the next stage. Look, um, I started a version of this that was getting way too melancholy. So um, I'm not sure how much I, I really want to unpack, mostly because I'm, I'm in a better headspace than I was expecting to be. Um, was pretty much dreading this being the end result as soon as the word about Omicron came out over the Thanksgiving break. That really soured the Thanksgiving break as well. Um, and then just sort of watch the next few weeks. Uh, just so everyone knows, I think I mentioned this at the top, you know, we will not be attempting this form. Part of that is the fact that the Pasadena Playhouse is booked up pretty much into the summer. Um, we don't have any dates we can drop this uh, that we that we like. So we're we're not going to attempt to do it. Um, we have started conversations with some other spots, uh, not necessarily all of them in Los Angeles. Um, and that sounds a lot, but we've, we've started conversations with one spot just in case that person's listening. I'm not talking to anybody else right now. Uh, <laughs> well, how many people is he talking? Just one, one. I'm talking to one person right now. Um, but that unlocks a whole, a whole network of things. Um, and we're... You know, landing landing this event is tricky because there's so many different stakeholders and there's so many different big events that uh, attract our folks. So pretty much every season has two events, major events for some faction of the immersive world. And uh, it gets, um, it, you know, it, yeah, that's our trouble. That's our struggle. Uh, we'll figure something out. Um we are likely to do uh, something around the spring fling time, uh, something in late March. Uh, not uh, maybe maybe something hybrid. Um, we haven't really had conversations yet. Um, we're giving ourselves some time. Uh, we're gonna do some basic publishing next week. Uh, I I'm taking a bit of a step back and. Trying to look at the shape of this. Um, this one's rough because the success of the event uh, was, in my mind at least, sort of a prerequisite for what comes next for the growth of what we're doing with um, the Institute, which is the 501c3 that we're forming, um, with the kind of work that I want to be doing going forward, the kind of work that I want NoPro to be doing. Uh, as a whole, with the idea of getting us more resources to do better work, um, to go deeper. And we're in a time when uh, there's even more interest in the kinds of work that we do. And we don't have the resources to uh, meet the demand, uh, particularly a demand for free work that we're always getting. <laughs> Everyone wants everyone wants uh, to pick our brains for for free, and we only have so much time. So, uh, not having the event was is definitely a setback. And some of you have been really fantastic, and people have people have donated uh, to our our tax deductible um, fund, which is great. And we'll be talking more about that in the future. And like I said, going to do something maybe some hybrid event in March late March, marking the anniversary of when, when the, the original summit would have been like we did last year. Um, 
there's a lot of it comes down to me needing to reconnect with the mission because the mission became something so specific uh, over the past two years, which was like, get the damn summit up. <clears throat> and since that's not happening, how the mission manifests um, and, and when the summit uh, emerges, whatever form it takes, uh, which I'm, I'm not going to speculate on right now, but uh, I, I do know that there are certain things that we were doing that I, I, I don't want to try, try to execute on anymore. That doesn't mean not mixing uh, performance work and talks, quite the opposite. Um, but it does mean, um, well, I don't want to get into the details um, because there's no details to be had yet. There's just where my instincts are going. And uh, the team and I get to sit down and we get to talk and sort of, you know, start for the blank page. You know, knowing what we know now about the way that the pandemic continues to unfold, knowing what we know now about where the work is going, how things are evolving, um, how do we want to make a unique event that brings the creative community together? That's uh, that's a question in front of us right now. And we're going to come up with something. And it's going to be better than what we were trying to do. It just is. Because I said so. Uh, <laughs> and we'll never be able to test the theory because we weren't able to try and do uh, what we were trying to do. Anyway, it's... Um, not the best note to end a year on. Um, that's for damn certain. And uh, as I'm recording this, I'm realizing, like, you know, I've been really not thinking about this uh, as much as I can uh, for the past few days. Just working through the logistics of closing out um, closing out all the business side of it. And luckily, that's been going pretty smoothly. I think I mentioned at the start, you know, uh, we were released from financial obligations. That's that's a real breath of fresh air. Um um, sigh of relief because uh, if we hadn't been, I would have been like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do for rent in a couple of months. But, um, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, I'm not an eccentric millionaire. And that's been weighing on my mind a lot too. Um, n not, in, not in that way. <laughs> I mean, yes, in that way, but more just like, you know, because I'm not a person of means, I don't know if I get to keep doing this work. Um, that's been a theme of late. Um, it seems impractical. I mean, it is impractical, uh, let's be certain, but uh, it's it feels increasingly uh, unsustainable. And uh, the summit was supposed to be one of the things that made it sustainable. Um, that being said, uh, I'm a clever boy. I'll uh, I'll figure something out. I'm already starting to figure things out. And it's taking me all my willpower to not just start brainstorming live in front of you. So, uh, you have enough monologues in your life as it is, i.e. you listen to this podcast enough. And you've got, uh, hopefully, a wonderful weekend ahead of you. I've got uh, a chill weekend of resetting everything and doing maintenance. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then a few chill days of reading. Um, we will be back uh, full steam uh, the week after next. 
again, no podcast this coming week, but we will, um, we may be publishing review crew, uh, not review crew, a uh, review rundown if enough stuff comes in. Uh, and barring that, uh, we're just going to live hollow for a second. Um, do we lose the initiative uh, on all the people who bought Oculuses? No, no, not really. People will find us sooner or later. That's the way it happens. All right. Uh, let's do the credits. We mentioned them at the beginning. We're going to mention them again. Thank you to Ari Herstan, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, David Basick, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman for being the rocks we build this on. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Presenting is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Shavana Lachlan for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the editor of No Presenium, the executive editor of No Presenium. Uh, the, the, the website. Uh, the, the No Pro podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed, barely mixed <laughs> this time by yours truly. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, two weeks from now. Well, I won't see you at the show because I'll be home. Uh, let's, let's think of a different one. Uh, right. Oh, yeah, the other one. Until next time, thank you for wearing the mask. Mm-hmm.